Welcome to a special edition of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Cummins. I'm your host, Frank Nam, and today we're actually going to join in a conversation that has been pre-recorded. It happened last fall in 2022 at the Gates Discovery Center, and it was Civic Commons' unveiling of the Greater Seattle Compact for Belonging. And this compact is a new social contract for our region uh, that has values around love, justice, belonging, and four practices around story sharing, advocacy, community building, and personal growth. And this is something that we want people to sign on to. So in the end, you will get some more information on how to do that and where to go. We are joining this conversation just after the introductions of the event. So please listen in as we talk to uh, four amazing guests to discuss these practices of belonging. So tonight we're going to unveil the Greater Seattle Compact for Belonging, which is a lot of words and a lot of syllables. But basically, it's a social contract. And I want to thank the Gates Discovery Center for their partnership. This space is beautiful if you had a chance to look around. Uh, who here's, who has, who's here for the first time ever? Wow, lots of people. So please come back. They have great exhibits. They have great programming. And I would be remiss if I you know, didn't remind you of that. So please come back uh, for more exhibits. So before I got to Seattle this trip, I realized like I heard it was a huge hot, like, uh, like you guys had like 80 degrees, 90 degrees weather. Is that true? And then you had lots of smoke. And then the weather's turned, right? It's freezing, it's cold. Winter is approaching. Uh, happy Diwali to those who are celebrating. Uh, the great thing about winter and this time of year is that the winter holiday is approaching. And it's amazing how many of our holidays are actually signified by lights. You think about the menorah and the lighting of the menorah in the window. You think about the red, green, and black candles of Kwanzaa. You think about Christmas trees, fireplaces. Like I've been, I've been thinking about light a lot. The great thing about light is that it is not, it does not have a scarcity mindset, which is a weird thing to say, I know. But light doesn't beget other light. Light's not like, oh, there's more light in the room. That's terrible. Like, how about my light, right? And if you're old enough like me, you remember those Christmas lights where one of those bulbs would die out and they all die, right? And it's just a pain. But why can't we be more like that? Why can't we see, see ourselves more like light? We have a lot of issues in our region. And I don't want to be focused on the issues and the problems, but our resources, we have a collective power, collective resources, collective intelligence, collective networks, that we actually bring our lights to bear on whatever the issue might be, we'd actually solve a lot more problems together. So that's what the Greater Seattle Compact is. It's basically a social contract or social uh, idea that how do we bring our light to bear together? What are the values that we share that underlie all our beliefs? What are the practices that help build belonging? So since 2018, Civic Commons has been working, has been working on this issue. We've been having conversations with folks, telling stories, sharing. What are the values that you believe in? What draws you to the region? Belong, And how do you feel like you don't belong? And these are conversations we've had many people from many different lived back backgrounds and experiences. And what we realize is that belonging is at the root of it. And so our three values in the compact are love, justice, and belonging. 
and I've been having conversations with a couple of folks in the room before this event started, love and justice are kind of intertwined. Uh, Dr. Cornell West calls justice love in public. And so if you think about any issue in the world right now, there's two solutions that we need, but we need both of them. We need laws, we need justice, because that prevents a barrier, prevents safety. You can't create a law that makes you humanize someone else. I can't make a law that makes you love the person that you're sitting next to, right? That's just impossible. That's why we need belonging and relationships. And we need both of those things to create this bridge that really separates us in this moment in history. So with that being said, you know, before going into the compact, we have a treat. We have people, four people, uh, they represent arts, commerce, government, museums, restaurants, small businesses, housing, you know, the people coming with different lived experiences and different backgrounds. And I'm really excited to have them come in. And as I uh, introduce each guest, I would invite them to come up to the, to the stage and sit down. <clears throat> First, we have Donna Moody, who is the owner of Marjorie. Yeah, if you have not been to Marjorie, you need to go. Donna is also the executive director of Cap Hill, the Capitol Hill Eco District uh, Initiative through Community Roots Housing. And so welcome, Donna. Next, we have Commissioner Sam Cho from the Port of Seattle. He was, at the time of his swearing in, the first Korean American and the youngest port commissioner in history. So welcome, Sam. And then Rosella Rosie Kennedy. And Rosie is a director of Impact and Equity at Camber Collective. She's also the author of an upcoming book that we'll talk about a little bit later. Last but not least, if you are a lover of the arts in the region, you should be no stranger to the next guest, which is Priya Frank. And Priya is the Director of Equity and Inclusion at Seattle Art Museum. She's also the chair of the City of Seattle's Art Commission for many years. So welcome, Priya. So this conversation actually stems from a podcast that we do at Civic Commons uh, called We Belong Here. And in that podcast, we usually bring in guests from different sectors on a theme. And then we have them answer three questions. One, who are you? Two, how does belonging fit into the work you do? And then three, what's something you're working on that you want to share? Because we believe in this idea of like circular connections and allowing people to like talk about the stuff that they care about. So I'm going to start with the first question, which is really a question about who they are. And since we can't be here, this is not a long form podcast. You're not here for like three hours. So don't worry. Uh, I have very pointed questions for all our guests. And I'm going to start with Donna. So I believe Marjorie is not your first restaurant. And I know you're involved in community in lots of different ways. What led you to this dual path of hospitality and community? Like what came first for you? Was it a love of community? Was it a love of hospitality, both? Um, so in my opinion, they both go kind of hand in hand. So it's really difficult to say which came first. Um, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of cooking. My family uh, immigrated from Jamaica to Chicago. And um, just immediately, my mom started hosting dinner parties, cooking, inviting strangers to dinner, which uh, as a teenager was incredibly embarrassing, but somehow seemed to impact uh, like my future. I would grow up to do the same thing, uh, to invite people to share uh, food around a table, and that just seemed to naturally flow into community. Um, a couple of years ago, I decided to... Um, changed the kind of trajectory of being a restaurateur 
um, who did community work to being a blank who owned a restaurant and ended up uh, my journey to work at Community Roots Housing and was so amazed and surprised at how well linked the two worlds were and how um, the restaurant space created a great environment for people to gather and talk about community building um, projects, ideas, have tough conversations, have uh, really great conversations of celebration. And it just seemed like a natural kind of part of the path of my life. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's when I think about um, my friends that work in food and beverage, you know, hospitality is a big part of what they do, welcoming guests, serving them delicious food, taking care of them. And it is, it's all rooted in the community, right? Because when we think about who fed us, who took care of us as young people, as kids, it's usually our parents, right? Or our grandparents in some cases. And that feeling of connection and love is so rooted in that sharing of bread, sharing of food and taking care of each other. And so I think it's that the answer makes sense that it's both. Thank you. So Priya, when I think about you, I think about arts, they're kind of in the same vein, right? I think about like who you are, like your energy, how you love the arts, how you care about artists, how you're kind of like any place that's arts related that you kind of show up. But where did this start? Like who or what piece or what event? Like who was your muse that gave you such passion for the arts? And then and then how did that love of the arts end up? How did you end up in the role that you have at SAM with that, with that being said? Thank you. Um, so I was born and raised in Seattle, uh, Lake City. Hey, anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Go Raiders! Yeah, I went to Nathan Hale. Um, and, you know, I think being raised by community. Um, so my grandparents are from India. My mom was born in Fiji. My dad was born in Kenya. I was born in Seattle. Uh, I'm the first born in my family, you know, born in the U.S., uh, first to go to college, you know, graduate, all the things, first to work in the arts, etc. cetera. Um, so I think for me, that's all kind of part of the journey. And uh, it's what's shaped me is a number of different in influences. And, um, you know, like growing up, I wanted to be a fashion designer. And so like I would just I was just really into that and then kind of forgot about it. But um, in so I grew up until high school going to a predominantly white Christian school and uh, by Northgate Mall and, you know, being pretty much the only kid of color in my class, things like that. And then I went to Nathan Hale and that was, you know, in the nineties and it was amazing. And it just opened up a whole world for me of like different histories that I didn't know about before, um, understanding the civil rights movement, um, you know, being around other youth that like were more culturally I could connect to, you know, things like that. And I mean, it was so funny because I was always like that girl that like, why is she always smiling? You know, as I was just so enamored to be in spaces where there are other kids of color and like to be able to uh, feel valued and cared about and to get to understand like other perspectives um, than just the dominant one. And it was literally at Nathan Hale that like, you know, I, that was where the seed was planted of, I wanted to create spaces and opportunities um, and experiences where folks like me could feel like there's a place where they could belong. 
And I literally describe it as that. And I have like way before you asked me to be on this panel, right? Like, because that sense of belonging, I wanted to create and curate that for other people where it wasn't just that, you know, they were um, accepted or tolerated, you know, tolerance was a big thing in like the nineties, you know, it wasn't just tolerance, but it was, you know, about celebrating, recognizing, being seen and recognizing the power that's in diverse experiences and how that shapes like the rest of our lives. And so I was doing that at Nathan Hale from like where I was on different committees and also, um, it's funny, like I start out some of my presentations uh, where, because I, I was a cheerleader and I put up a picture of myself in my cheer outfit at 16 or whatever, like th- I became a cheerleader for racial equity work at that time. And it's literally because that those seeds were planted there for me. And I don't didn't know how that was going to manifest, but it did. And I just kept doing it and kept doing it. And like, Uh, My undergrad was in American Ethnic Studies and Communications at UW. And my first entry point really to the arts was uh, the first job I had um, after undergrad. And um, that was working at a performing arts organization at Meany Hall for the Performing Arts. Um, It was called the UW World Series at the time. And I was a development assistant, halftime, became full-time, worked there for eight years and did all the things. It was a small organization, but that really showed me that how the arts are a tool and a mechanism and just a complete foundation for what this work of belonging um, and can look like and affirming the experiences culturally of so many other folks besides the dominant perspective. And that's when I realized like, whoa, there's something really powerful about that and a connector that the arts have across diverse constituencies. And it's like the bridge, right? And it's the way in which we can utilize that to talk about really important essential experiences and how that binds us, you know, across difference. And so to me, I was like, holy moly, this is this is for me, you know, this is what I want to do. And I didn't know how that was going to manifest or anything like that, but I just kept kind of doing the work in different capacities and in community. And um, it got to like co-found a women of color in the arts group, which is how I met a lot of just really incredible dynamic women doing amazing work in the community and um, co uh, I curated art at a lounge in the U district called Lucid. If anyone ever went there, it was open for like eight years. Yeah. And that place was magic. It was where every, you know, anything was possible and all the things that I was um, bound by in like an institution like UW, but like we did whatever we wanted at Lucid and the owner David was just like so incredible and in like manifesting that and helping me to figure out like, why is this so powerful? Why do I want to keep doing this? And so, you know, it was, and I realized like the visual art aspect and, and I used to like do these, uh, little like, uh, exhibitions in the bathroom, essentially that would ask people questions related to the art and they could respond. Cause like they were just hanging out in the bathroom or whatever. And that was, cause it was a small space. And th- those are the kind of like installations that got people talking. And so eventually I got to do, you know, start doing that work at Sam. Um, they brought me in, I think, because I did installations in the bathroom or like from wherever you were, because it wasn't about like the fanciness of the space, but it was about like 
like that connection building and, and meeting folks where they were and how can Sam be a resource for community? So it's not just about folks coming to the museum and breaking down those barriers, but also what does it look like to show up and be a resource and how can we amplify artists in the community um, and that they're, you know, cultures that are represented there and all of that. So that's what I get to do. And it's amazing. And I love it. And it gives me life and it's my life's work. So. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. If you, you know, as an audience is listening, you know, thinking about like what brings people together, what connects, thinking about food, think about hospitality, think about the arts. There's so many points in our life where we kind of like take what is going on in our, our worlds. Cause you all probably, a lot of you came from work you may be still thinking about the meeting that you had or the meeting that you will have or the deadline, et cetera. And that's normal, right? That's the way we have to live our world. That's how we pay the bills and put food on the table. But it's these moments of humanness, right? Where it's connections through arts, through food, through music, right? That we can actually be in community with one another uh, with the similarities that we have and the differences that we share as well. So moving forward, I want to uh, now address, uh, talk to Rosie, who is not, uh, is not just an executive, uh, you know, working at a consulting firm here in Seattle, but is an author, is an entrepreneur, uh, is the uh, creator of the Brave Sis website, which has amazing journals. Uh, please check them out. Filled with stories of powerful BIPOC women. And Rosie, uh, Rosie's brought a copy. I love it. So prepared. Uh, and I know in your website, you honor your mother, Florence, and your grandmother, Alice, in your work. Um, I would love for you to tell us how these two women impacted who you are today, because I'm sure you can probably talk for years about that. But then also, how are you able to pivot into your current role at a consulting company with what you do? Thank you so much. First of all, I moved to Seattle 10 days ago. So this is just wow. amazing. Give it up. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I did Frank's podcast last week. You were like the best welcoming committee ever. One person um, mega show. Um, so, you know, the or so this is Bracis journal and I'll talk about it a little bit, but I'll expand out to like what it means about who I am and what I do and the way I live in the world and, and the work I'm trying to push and do. In 2019, I'd gone through a really difficult personal time, like a real tumultuous blah, and kind of came out of it like resiliently and said, I'm going to like take accountability for my life and I'm going to start journaling and like being like planning and be so I started looking in the in the industry and everything was like white girls in the suburbs with the unicorns and and I was like uh. and then um and then the the black girl ones were like you go girl like these beautifully bold covers and then you look inside and they were absolutely generic like so sad and I was like, God, no, you know, we got to do better than that. I, too, have a background in the arts. I ran performing arts organizations. I'm married to a man in the contemporary classical music world who's relatively known. And so I'd been in spaces like that and done those things. And was like, well, I'm not going to do some generic, boring thing. I'm going to just make my own thing and I'm going to make it mine and I'm going to sell it to 50 friends and boom, what up? Uh, 2020 came around and all the things that happened happened and I did my little Kickstarter and I brought in $25,000. I was like, oh my God, I got to create a real business. So I um, created the first journal. It's the, day, it's, the, it's the world's only journal slash day planner that highlights 
Black, Brown, Asian, and Indigenous women in U.S. history. And when I first did it, uh, it was like, oh, I'm going to include Sarah Vaughn and Toni Morrison and a lot of people I love, Zora Neale Hurston. And a girlfriend of mine who is uh, prop- uh, intellectual property lawyer is like, Rosie, you can't do that. They're going to their estates are going to come after you, which was actually not true. I learned in the end, but I got scared and I was like, okay, had the moment, the valley of death, like they call that, like when you're a founder, an entrepreneur, you know, you have several valleys of death, which are like these moments where you're like, I can't do this. And one of them is the go to market moment. And I was like, I can't do this. And I was like, I have to do this because on Christmas morning, 2019, I had this visitation experience in my room, of course, that said, tell my story. And so I bolted out of bed and I was like, oh, that's a story. And I started researching all these women. But when my girlfriend told me that, I was like, all right, I better like back off the famous people and start talking about people no one's ever heard of. And that's what catapulted this thing into the thing that it is today. Brave Sis has been a way for me to like delve into the stories of these women who were erased, who very few people know about and who deserve their flowers. And this new one, which is the 2023 one, the subtitle is Come Get Your Flowers, because I love that expression. And I wanted to create a space where women who who did amazing things in little ways could have a moment of being uplifted and that it could inspire all of us to start looking for the people like that in our lives. The way that our society is set up, there's certain narratives and certain dominant frameworks about who matters, whose voice gets heard, whose story gets told, who gets who gets celebrated, who's pretty, who's worthy of our esteem and our regard. And I was just like, you know, I'm not I'm not down with the way this is done. I'm going to do my own thing. And as I started to do my own thing, people really liked it. And like some people don't like I want to be I want to be honest with you. Some black women are like, why did you include Asian, indigenous and Latinx women in this book. Like, we don't want that. And I'm like, well, you go do you and you go build your thing. This is the world I live in. I live in a very deeply multicultural world. I grew up in New York City. I lived in a world that was always pluralistic. And it wasn't a question. And I've, I recognize the privilege in that. I also have family members who don't live in that at all, who live in a very, very different class strata. And I recognize the difference of them. And then I have like the majority of my friends who are white women who are like for real, for real, like they're real, like they were not allies because that word didn't exist. They were like, you're in my heart. I'm in your heart. This is who we are together. So I wanted to create a space for us to come together. And then there's some dudes too, like brave bros who are like, yeah, I'm down with this. I like this. So I was able to create that in the book. And you can check it out and like all sorts of fun merch, blah, blah, blah. This is the third edition of the journal. And I like I invite people to tell me about women that that I don't know about. I'd love to do a, um, a global brave sis at some point. When you start to incorporate into your heart the story of a woman who doesn't look like you. Right. Because if I'm black, this Latinx woman is not me. This Asian woman whose family were Nisei, who were put in the internment camps. That's not my story. But we sort of see what we have in common. We see these structures of how we've been erased and oppressed and, and persevered and pushed through. You start to see that your heart opens. This is a belonging thing. Your heart opens up and you're like, I see you. I feel you. I am you. And I really strongly believe to my core when you make that shift internally. That changes the, the, the group you're in, the organization, the company, the, the firm, whatever. And then collectively, we can change the world. And if you don't do that part of the internal shifting and learning, it won't stick.
right? And so I believe this to my soul. I am so thrilled that a year and two weeks ago, I was hired at Camera Collective to lead the um, equity impact and equity work. And we're trying to build that same framework into what we're doing as a firm. It's like we're starting with our own internal work and then we're starting to build coalitions and build it into our client work. And I swear to God, my biggest goal with this is that we shift the way people think about consultancy, the way that, like, you know, those, those, um, I do the, I said this earlier, it's like the uh, Michael Jackson thriller. We're not like the other boys, right? Like, I really mean that. I, I really, truly, firmly believe that we can define a different way to be, different way to do philanthropy, humanitarianism and development. And so Frank, you put it so well when we were speaking, you said, Rosie, you are living Ikigai. Did I pronounce that right? Ikigai, when the, um, when the Japanese thing of when all the Venn diagrams, like, I feel very, except for the fact that my children are having a detonation and my life's falling apart. I feel very blessed right now because I feel like what I believe in my soul and what I've been blessed to be able to do in my work are really coming together in a powerful way. And it really is about belonging. It's about looking at someone else and saying, oh, I see you. Oh, your grandmother was, your grandmother was, was Lakota. Oh, wow. I heard about this amazing woman who like built all these schools in Lakota territory. I want to know more about you. I want to know you as you and not you as some sort of like tokenistic check the box. Like, oh, I did my diversity thing today. I got to know someone different, but really in your soul, what that is. So that's kind of like where it's at for me right now. Thanks. No, thank you. I love it. Last but not least, we have Sam, who has uh, previously worked in federal government, right? Uh, you've started your own successful export company uh, during the Asian uh, avian flu, flu crisis. I think flu crisis, I think you sent over millions of eggs to South Korea. Very entrepreneurial. You've worked here locally in the state with uh, Bob Hasegawa. You've worked and the Asian uh, API committee with uh, the commission with Governor Inslee. I, I'm kind of curious, like, were you always destined to run for office? Like, did you expect to be in this role that you have now, like when you were in like high school, college? And how did you get to the space where you are now? Yeah, so the, 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 the answer to the first part of the question is absolutely not. Um, I often joke in hindsight because uh, this is true, but it's, it's funny now. Uh, my mom used to, growing up, used to tell me, uh, there's three things in life you should never do. All right, drugs, gambling, and politics. <laughs> All right, uh, so two out of three is not bad. Uh, but, um, but obviously, you know, I fell into politics and, um, you know, you have to understand that uh, for a lot of Asian Americans, first of all, let me just I'll give you a little back background. My parents are immigrants as well, like Frank from South Korea. Uh, they immigrated in the mid 80s. Um, and uh, they came here. In fact, uh, they actually first immigrated here through the Port of Seattle. Uh, and so for them, it was a very uh, a full circle moment when their son was sworn in as the commissioner of the Port of Seattle. And so that was a really, really cool moment. In fact, I, Frank, you may know this, but when I took my oath of office as the Port Commissioner, I did it in both English and Korean mm -hmm. as kind of a tribute to my uh, heritage. Uh, but the reason I bring that up is because um, a lot of Asian Americans who immigrated here in the last 30 years are actually likely to have fled some sort of uh, political persecution and or fled a dictatorship or communism, right, if you're Vietnamese during the Vietnam War, right? And so 
they're actually uh, by by just their own experience from their home countries are very uh, not encouraging to their second generation children about going into politics. Uh, that's just you know um, a remnant or a byproduct of their lived experience. Uh, and so again, growing up, my parents would always say, you know, never do drugs, you know, never you know, gamble and don't do politics. Um, and so when I did decide to jump in the ring and become uh, a candidate for office, um, you know, my my uh, my dad was actually surprisingly extremely uh, happy about it. I think there's something weird about like Korean dads and being in politics. As you get older, like there's something about them being really like deeply into politics. Um, but you know, like in my parents' mentality has always been, you know, we came here for the American dream, right? We came here so you would succeed economically. Like, why would you run for office, right? Like, it's like taking a pledge to poverty, right? Like, that's not that's not what we want for you. Um, but I think for me, the most amazing part was when I told my parents that I was going to do this, they didn't skip a beat and they were 100% with me. It did, I mean, despite the, the, the 29 years of telling me the same thing, right? The second I made my decision and my heart was there, uh, they were 100% behind me. In fact, I, I, I'm like 99, I'm 9.9% sure that if I had not had my parents' support, I don't know if I would have won uh, my office, right? My mom did everything, literally was at every fundraiser, made the food, you know, just like how every, you know, supportive mother would be. Um, but it was, I think, uh, pretty eye-opening for me as an individual to see how my parents have come around despite how, what their, you know, you know, it, it's really antithetical to the kind of the stereotype of Asian parents being tiger parents and imposing, you know, I think at the end of the day, to be honest, like, they just want us to be happy. Uh, and that's no different for Asian parents, right? Uh, and so when I told them that this is my passion and this is what I wanted to do, uh, it was, um, you know, really touching for me to see my parents go all out, really, like, and, and you talk about community, but, you know, one thing that I wanted to kind of touch is like uh, Asian communities and most immigrant communities are very interesting because there's actually a very big difference between a first generation and second generation within immigrant communities, right? So basically my parents' generation where there may be first generation Americans who who are, or 1.5 generation, and the second generation Korean Americans like myself and Frank who, oh, well, although Frank wasn't born here, uh, but grew up here, right? Um, and there's always this disconnect within our community, right? And I think one of the biggest eye-opening moments for me, having known that there was this bifurcation within the Korean community, is that when I ran for office, everyone in the community supported me. It didn't really matter if it was first generation or second generation. Just the fact that there was a Korean American, young Korean American running for office was huge. Uh, and, and, and that all goes back to the idea that, you know, uh, because they saw an opportunity to actually have representation, right? And for me, um, you know, you asked why, why or how I ended up in this space. And, you know, you're right. I spent many years in D.C. I, I grew up here in Seattle, went to high school here and spent many years in Washington, D.C. I went to undergrad in D.C., worked for a member of Congress. I served in the Obama administration. Um, and one of the things that deeply impacted me was the mentors that I had who were Asian-American. And they always impressed upon me how much representation matters. Right, and they would say, and, and in DC, there's a saying. Uh, it's it's a little cruel, but but the saying is, uh, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. Right? Yeah, yeah, and um, and that that mentality is born out of our lived experience as Asian Americans in this country, whether it's the Chinese Exclusion Act or the internment of uh, Japanese Americans during World War II. Right? 
Um, and so part of what was my call to action and why I ran for office was uh, we needed more API and younger API rep uh, representation in uh, at those tables. Um, and I think, you know, I, I didn't think that I would run at the age of 29 and, and win, quite frankly, um, which was kind of ridiculous. But in many ways, uh, everything came to a head after I was elected and became board commissioner during the pandemic. When, as you all know, there was a lot of hate towards the Asian American community, a lot of anti-Asian hate. Uh, our community felt to here in Seattle, but it was just rampant all over the U.S., and quite frankly, like, yes, I'm unelected, but I'm no member of Congress and I'm no, you know, uh, governor or whatever. And so, you know, I, I really didn't think that the time for me to step up would have shown up so soon. But literally, I was sworn in January 7th. COVID hit us January 21st and we went into lockdown in March. Right. And it was like, all right, you're up. Right. And for the first time in my life, um, I had always known that we needed representation. But I didn't really, but I think it was the first time that I really saw it. And I saw, damn, like this is what we like, this is what we need in this moment. And then during the pandemic, and um, we I had this moment of realization around allyship and solidarity. Um, and it's funny that we're having this on this day, because exactly one year ago, I stood at Seattle Tacoma International Airport with Governor Inslee. And we announced that we would be accepting refugees from Afghanistan mm -hmm. after the fall of Kabul. And so we opened the SAA Welcome Center for Afghan Refugees. And um, I stood there at the podium and I gave this speech about my family's experience as immigrants, why I support our Afghan refugees, our history of accepting refugees, whether you were Irish, you were an Irishman escaping the potato famine or a Vietnamese person escaping the Viet Cong during the Vietnamese war. Like this is what makes us exceptional. This is what is part of uh, what it means to be American. And that was my first time as an elected uh, really stepping up in that space of allyship and solidarity. And so um, all this to say that, you know, uh, life is full circle, you know, uh, and uh, I'm really, really, uh, I feel very blessed and fortunate to be in the position that I am, you know, even though I'm just a poor commissioner. <laughs> just a poor commissioner. Come on. The great thing about Sam is that he actually answered my second question, which is, you know, how does belonging fit into your work? And I wanted him to talk about his work with the Afghan refugees and that work of how this port and our port really welcomed folks uh, from Kabul and from that uh, part of history. And it's been one of the great things also, if you're not aware of, there's a great organization here in the region called Vietz for Afghans, because the Vietnamese community was the last community thinking about war-torn refugees that came and escaped war to come to the United States. There's a community that knows what it feels like to not belong, to feel welcomed, and try to fit into this American culture, which is kind of like a interesting place to be, but how they welcomed a whole group of people and they rallied and they brought in resources and connections and relationships to the Afghan community, which is just really powerful to see. Um, and when we, when I talk about scarcity, when I talk about lights and how like, you know, like that's a big problem with belonging is that if we have a mindset about scarcity is that if you feel like, oh, other people need to get more things, that means I get less. And if you think about a zero sum where there's just a singular pie that everyone has to keep splitting up, of course, you're gonna feel that way. You know, every time we think about equity as a pie that just does not change, then we're gonna always feel this like push to like, oh, how do I feel about this? Do I lose something? Do I give up something? Should I give up something? 
But the great power of equity and coming together as you know, all uh, folks from different backgrounds and lived experiences and religions and cultures is that you grow that pie immensely, right? It does, the pie does not stay the same, right? And this idea of like surplus thinking, the idea of creating growth for everyone is powerful. And so that's just kind of like a mentality that sometimes stops us from supporting each other, caring for each other, because we feel like if someone gets something, then I get less, but it's totally the opposite. The bright, the light gets shinier, the warmth envelops more people, there's more sustainability, there's more for everyone. Yeah. I actually really quickly want to share something. I, I told you that it's been exactly a year since we started uh, accepting Afghan refugees. Last weekend, we actually had a dinner and welcomed back the Afghan refugees to SeaTac Airport at our conference center and we had dinner. Um, and in my remarks, and this is completely unrelated to this event or what we're talking about here, but it's just, just, just a crazy coincidence that we're talking about belonging because what I, what I told the, the group is like, I hope by now you realize that you're not just welcome in this country, that you belong in this country. And people, like I didn't really, really expect a reaction to that, but pe uh, people started crying. And I, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so crazy like how one word can make such a big difference. Our signs at the airport said, welcome you know, refugees, right? But what if our signs had said, you belong here, right? I, I mean, it's just so, such a different, struck such a different tone, right? And so I, I totally agree with you. No, I appreciate that, uh, that story because it's, it is true. Like uh, we need belonging for us to survive. We think about Maslow's triangle and kind of belonging is in the middle. But if you think about it, unless you have parents that care for you and that you feel like you belong, you won't survive in this world, right? You need someone to feed you, take care of you, clothe you. Um, so thinking about that idea of like uh, that first level of like the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy, like food and sustenance is a big part of that. And so kind of moving to Donna, right? Thinking about this question, how does belonging fit into the work you do, both in food, hospitality, but also in community and housing? like. How do you go about creating belonging in those institutions and those places? I, I think for me, um, the idea of belonging um, begins with the idea of feeling welcome when you come into a business. And I think the restaurant, while it, you know, in many ways is welcoming, it feeds people, there's a sense of, you know, oh, I have a reservation. We're going to sit here and have dinner with our guests or by ourselves. Seems like the kind of typical story. But so often um, when people go out, they uh, don't feel like they belong. Sometimes they feel very uncomfortable. Um, we don't have the, I think our city is growing in diversity, but it hasn't always been the story of our city. So many people don't really feel welcome in, in many places, not just in restaurants or commerce places. And so I think to create a space that has always felt welcoming has been a priority of mine in how I approach business. And the idea of um, sharing that with the community, I think extends the invitation to belong. So finding work that you can do um, representing the restaurant throughout the community has always been a goal of mine. And it just kept leading to more and more um, work and, and forms of uh, just kind of opening up doors for what you could learn, what you could use a restaurant to do. And I think for me, it started with um, a little bit of board work at the original Marjorie in Belltown, then looking at things like, oh, we're closed on Sunday and Monday. Maybe we can have a fundraiser on those nights. Maybe we can invite people in. We'll have some snacks. People will, you know, will raise money for different causes. And that would just keep developing into more and more things. Oh, I'll belong to this 
community or committee or do this work. And the more I did it, the more I learned uh, a lot about the need and also a desire that I had to continually be a part of making a change instead of just talking about it. And as I moved to Capitol Hill, it was important for me to, to kind of look at different things that I could do there. And probably the biggest moment for me was when the pandemic hit and restaurants were closed down, kind of scurrying quickly to figure out how to help other small businesses, how to use the restaurant to serve food to people that were suddenly cut off from receiving food. And then also just how to keep people kind of busy and engaged and connecting. So, you know, through the winter of um, 2020 and into 2021, we often would just meet at the restaurant, even though we couldn't eat inside. I would just tell people, wear coats, you know, dress warm, we'll sit outside and you can meet so-and-so and so-and-so and and you can, you know, have a drink or, or just talk about business or community work. And it just kept evolving. I think working at Community Roots Housing just kind of taught me that there's there's always going to be a need in this city for housing, but the way we develop it and work together across organizations and across different um, communities of people that are in need for housing, but also that want to create housing and want to brainstorm together and think about alternative ideas, supporting um, different communities, the arts community, looking at you know environmental work, looking at how to keep our parks feeling um, safe through not so much surveillance, but engagement, thinking about different things that we can add and do to our city to make it grow. It, it kind of always, it might not come back to the restaurant, but we can meet at the restaurant and talk about it and grow it and share ideas. And it certainly seems like a wonderful thing to invite people to discuss topics there. So that's kind of, for me, where they tie in together. Awesome. It's, it's one of those great places about going to a, a restaurant where you're really taken care of. But I also love the restaurants where the, the owner or the general manager starts introducing people to others. This happens a lot in Korea where it's actually kind of a dating thing. It's kind of weird. Maybe 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 it's not great, but they will actually like be like, hey, this group of uh, table of young people, let me introduce you to this group of table of young people and you guys can sit and talk or you don't have to. It's up to you. But uh if you did that here in the States, like people would be like freaked out. They'd be like, why are you inviting strange people to sit at my <laughs> table and eat my food? Like, I don't understand this at all. But maybe we need more of that. Maybe we need more of that. Yeah. I should start that? Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, it my gosh. This is, where, this is where great ideas are born, right? Anyone in the audience wants to join in this venture, uh, we're, we're taking investors uh, tonight. Just Say that again. I was just saying that happens at Marjorie all the time. In fact, when we were closed, uh, while I was looking for a new location, I would have a lot of the regulars call me up and say, um, could you have a dinner party? Because we haven't seen so-and-so in so long, and we just want to know if they're okay, what are they doing, or people will just come in and like, oh, I'm here to meet so-and-so tonight. You know, this is where I always meet them and check in on them, and you can really, it is amazing. You can build a community from uh, just that simple act of meeting and checking in on each other and meeting new people. Oh, when we started this venture uh, around Civic Commons and we belong here, the... we. You know, to explain belonging, I use an allegory that everyone probably heard of, stone soup, like the allegory of stone soup. How do you actually get people to share their ingredients to build a meal together? And I think there's a reason why that allegory works, because the idea of food and people, intersection of people and cultures makes so much sense. 
The other place where that happens a lot is like we said before, is the arts, right? And so um, I remember thinking about the arts are a great place to practice belonging because when we enter a space for arts, we kind of take away who we are um, and we enter the space because we want to know what the story is about, who are the characters, what's the movement, what did the painter decide, right? And it's less about like, let me just bring myself into this, which you still do, but there's this, a willingness to kind of listen to other stories in the arts. So Priya, in your work, you know, be at Seattle Arts, uh, Seattle Art Museum, be it with the, the, the Arts Commission, be it with the, any of the projects that you've taken on, um, even the work you do with museums and trying to create more inclusivity. Like how does belonging fit into that work and how do you create more belonging in your work? You know, I think like I mentioned of like my experience in high school and stuff like that, for me, it's a value. So it's when does it not include that? You know, I think in in whatever capacity that I'm doing it, um, it's interesting to do it in an institution, right? Because uh, particularly in museums that, you know, there's a lot of structural inequities um, in the museum field. Uh, representation is still predominantly white. Um, so how do you start shifting that, you know, and I literally was hired six years ago at SAM, you know, around community partnership work um, and programming around what does it mean to create a more accessible museum and start breaking down some of those barriers. And I think, you know, one of the th things is that I've been able to do that really organically as a result of just being a part of this community my whole life. And so um, it wasn't it was, you know, authentic because it's how I lived. I've lived my life. Um, and so I feel like that was something that they were excited about and looking for. I didn't come from the museum field. Uh, I come from more of community building, you know, and like using the arts as a way of connecting. Um, and so the, I guess the methods for how I did that or how I do that is maybe not so I guess, traditional to that field, but it was you know, really like, okay, well, what does it look like? You know, just like if you're dating or making friends with somebody, like asking them, you know, organizations or individuals or artists, like, what are you doing? What are you into? What do you love? You know, what makes your heart skip a beat? And not for like, okay, well, we have this exhibition and you can fit into this, you know, peg or whatever hole square thing but like just understanding what other people are excited about and what makes them passionate about what they do and then hey here's what I'm passionate about and and hey let's stay in touch would love to continue to connect to go to your things in community to show up consistently to invite my friends or my colleagues so we can all like build this ongoing relationship, not just for right now when this particular exhibition is coming to Sam, but for like the long term. And so what does it look like to, you know, start kind of break down those barriers, build those authentic relationships and recognize that, you know, whether it's um, something that's culturally specific or whatever, like there's lots of different ways that people connect with different exhibitions that are coming, you know, or the the themes around that. And I think being, you know, from here and being somebody that is a connector, like I love being able to connect folks to things that they're excited about or like learning about them and then being like, hey, well, have you heard of this organization or are you going to this event? Why don't you go to, you know, come meet this person or whatever. And like, that's how it sort of builds, right? Is this organic, authentic and simple. Like it's, 
you know, like it's little, but it ends up being so big because who knows what can happen when that heart connection happens. And that's where it matters. And that's where like you build those things out over a long period of time. And that is an investment, right? It's an investment in, in who folks are. It's like coming, it's the like listening. It's, it's about storytelling and, you know, story listening, like it says in the, in the video, but like, it's those ways of connecting in spaces that people are comfortable with and recognizing that museums aren't always that place. And so where is it that folks might feel comfortable and how am I going to show up too? Because I think like there can be a perception of like, oh, I'm meeting with someone from Sam or whatever. And then it's like, you know, so like, let's meet where you feel great and where I feel great and where we can both feel like we're thriving. And, um, you know, full circle. So um, we did, so the Asian Art Museum was closed for a couple of years for renovation. So we did, I got to do a ton of like engagement work and understanding, you know, who comes to there, who doesn't, why. So, you know, meeting with a lot of like, like friends and community colleagues, um, you know, BIPOC folks, uh, where do we do that? So we literally picked Marjorie and that was one of the spaces that we would do that. And I did not plan this, by the way. I did not know that. <laughs> and so I just, you know, I just want to call that out because I knew that I felt comfortable and safe there. And that was a space and that is a space in community where whether you plan it or not, like I can swing by there and I know there's going to be someone I know, someone that like cares about me or someone that just, or, you know, by myself or with other people. And that's, those are those kinds of staples that really um, inspire uh, the work that I do and the kinds of ways that I want to be able to create and build and foster and sustain community. And so like, I just want to call that out because that is a space where I get to do that work because you have built a space of belonging. And so that connection between like an institution or a restaurant, I mean, we're doing those things from where we are, but like how great when I get to come and do it there. <laughs> so, you know, it's just one of those things. And because I've had amazing examples, like Alicia Ba Johnson, um, who is one of the co-founders of Wanawari, um, had a space um, in Capitol Hill that like I called Fair Gallery Cafe. I mean, that work that she did there, I bought my first art piece there. And I felt like I could because it was a space where I could come and just chill and be myself and be with my friends and hang out. And like Lucid was another space. So those, you know, Marjorie's another place, like all of these have created what my sense of belonging looks like. And I strive to do that in an institutional sense, but also you know, we're people in a museum that are passionate about this kind of work. So, you know, also breaking down the stereotypes and the barriers of who and what a museum is and represents and redefining what that looks like. So there's so many stories that we've told so far that connect yeah. and intertwine. And I also I, I say this a lot in my work. One of the great enemies of belonging is time, because time is a resource that you can't make more of. We're kind of stuck in the time that we have. And with time, I also know that this museum closes at like 7.15 and we got to get out. Thank you so much to our guests for your stories that connect. Let's give it up. Thank you.